0: Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the highway community. It's great to see all of you here this morning. We're glad that you have joined us as we gather together for worship. This morning, we are finishing our seven-week teaching series through Colossians entitled Centered, where we've been exploring what it means to locate Christ at the center of our lives and allow him to deeply inform the way that we live. And this morning, uh, as we look together at the very last section of Paul's letter, uh, which contains Paul's final instructions to the Colossians, as well as his personal greetings to them, we're going to see that being centered in Christ is inextricably linked to being centered in community being centered in Christ is inextricably linked to being centered in community. If you have your Bible with you this morning, you'd like to join with join me in Colossians. Uh, you'll find Colossians towards the end of your Bibles, a sandwich right between Philippians and 1 Thessalonians. Colossians chapter 4 is where we're going to be, and as always you're welcome as well to follow along with the text on the screens behind me. Colossians chapter 4. Now over the past three weeks, we have seen repeatedly that this last section of Paul's letter is dominated really by a series of commands. And we see that continue here at the beginning of chapter four as Paul gives his final instructions to the Colossians. Look with me at Colossians chapter four beginning at verse two. Devote yourselves to prayer, being watchful and thankful. And pray for us too, that God may open a door for our message so that we may proclaim the mystery of Christ for which I am in chains. Pray that I may proclaim it clearly, as I should. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Paul's commands here, which come really in this rapid-fire succession, not only represent a fitting culmination of all of the teaching that has come before in his letter up to this point, but they also reflect, I think, in a very important way, the extent to which Paul considers the Colossians to be partners in the mission of the gospel. And that sense of partnership we see in these verses starts first and foremost with prayer. Devote yourselves to prayer, Paul says in verse 2. Being watchful and thankful. Thankful. And notice there that Paul doesn't just instruct the Colossians to pray. He instructs them to pray with expectation. As they pray, they're to be watchful. They're to be alert. Alert for the ways that God is going to move. Alert for the things that God is going to do among them. And so they're to pray very much with the sense of anticipation. And that's highlighted even further by Paul's instructions for them to be thankful. Right there, to pray and pray expecting God to work and then be thankful for those things when they see it. And then we see in verse 3 that Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him as well, that God would open the door for the mystery of Christ to be proclaimed. Now, Paul started his letter, remember, By telling the Colossians that he and Timothy, since the day that they had first heard about them, had not stopped praying for them. They were constantly praying for the Colossians. And back in chapter 1, verse 9, their prayer is this. We continually ask God to fill you with the knowledge of his will through all the wisdom and understanding that the Spirit gives. So that you may live a life worthy of the Lord and please him in every way. So Paul and Timothy were praying for the Colossians. They were praying for them continuously, and now Paul is inviting the Colossians to reciprocate. He's inviting them to reciprocate. And that invitation reinforces, in this very practical and powerful way, what Paul has been telling the Colossians all throughout the course of the letter, which is that they are included, that they are a part of God's people, that through their faith in Jesus' death and resurrection, through that faith and because of that faith alone, they are a part of all of this. And because of that, their prayers are both necessary and vital. And so we see here that that being connected to others through prayer, praying for others and allowing others to pray for us is a vital part of the journey of keeping Christ at the center of things. And we also see from these final instructions that the Colossians' partnership with Paul doesn't just involve prayer. They're also partners in the work of proclaiming the good news as well. So their partnership with Paul doesn't just involve prayer. They're also partners in the work of proclaiming the good news. Look again at verse 5. Be wise in the way that you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. And you know, just like we saw in Colossians chapter 3, when, when Paul instructed the Colossians to put on love in the form of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, patience, and forgiveness, he's again calling the Colossians here to be purposeful and to be intentional about living as God's representatives in the world. They're to be mindful of the way that they act toward outsiders so that there's no room for for criticism or gossip about the behavior of Christians. They're to to make the most of every opportunity, literally to, to snap up opportunities to embody the good news as if they were some kind of a bargain blowout on Black Friday. That's the language that Paul is using here. They're to snap up opportunities to embody the gospel like they were bargains. Their conversations are to be full of grace, seasoned, Paul says, with salt, which is a metaphoric way of saying that their conversations should always be engaging and and interesting as they interact with others. And I love that phrase there at the end of verse 6. Paul says, let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. It's so that you may know how to answer everyone. So the implication there is that as we embody Christ, as we embody Christ through the way that we live, and as we embody him through the words that we say, there are going to be questions that are asked. And people are going to be curious. Paul calls the Colossians here to very much be partners with him in the mission of proclaiming the gospel by living and speaking curiously. In the next three verses, Paul introduces the messengers who are going to be delivering his letter. And as he does that, interestingly enough, he actually gives the Colossians an opportunity to put all of these final instructions into practice in a very tangible way. Look at verse 7. Tychicus will tell you all the news about me. He is a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. I am sending him to you for the express purpose that you may know about our circumstances and that he may encourage your hearts. He is coming with Onesimus, our faithful and dear brother, who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. And so Tychicus, in addition to delivering Paul's letter to the Colossians, is also going to be updating them on Paul's circumstances and, and encouraging their hearts. And we see that Paul upholds Tychicus here as a dear brother, a faithful minister, and a fellow servant in the Lord. And all of those words of commendation are particularly significant in light of who is accompanying Tychicus on this journey. These words of commendation are all very significant in light of the fact that Onesimus is accompanying Tychicus to Colossae. Now, Onesimus was coming to Colossae due to circumstances that are more specifically outlined for us in Paul's brief letter to Philemon. And from what we can reconstruct from that letter, Onesimus was a slave in the household of Philemon who had run away illegally and then somehow ended up meeting Paul in another city and, becoming a fo- and became a follower of Jesus. And Paul and Onesimus, through that, became friends, their relationship development developed, and then somewhere along the way, as Onesimus grew in his faith, he and Paul decided that it was time for Onesimus to return to Colossae to seek restoration and forgiveness with Philemon. And so the purpose of Paul's letter to Philemon was to broker Onesimus' return to Colossae and to broker his return in a completely different way, no longer as a slave, Paul says in Philemon, but as a dear brother. And here, as Onesimus shows up with Tychicus with the letter, we see Paul effectively calling the Colossians to do the same thing, to welcome Onesimus, not as a slave, but as a dear brother. Look again at verse 9, at the way that Paul does this. He is coming with Onesimus, Tychicus is, our faithful and dear brother who is one of you. They will tell you everything that is happening here. Notice the way that Paul's language there in that verse emphasize Onesimus's standing, that Paul refers to him as a brother. He uses the same adjectives that he uses to describe Tychicus, faithful and dear. He uses the inclusive pronoun, calling him our brother. And then we also see that Onesimus is a messenger as well, that along with Tychicus, Onesimus will also be telling the Colossians about the things that are happening with Paul. And all of that reinforces in this very direct way from Paul's perspective that Onesimus, as a result of his faith, is no longer a slave. that He is now accepted. He is now included as a part of the people of God. He's a partner in the work of the gospel. And, as Paul very cleverly reminds the Colossians in verse 9, he's one of them now as well. And so Paul invites them to put all of these instructions into practice by accepting and welcoming Onesimus into their community. You know, it's interesting. As Paul has addressed the various false teachings that were circulating in Colossae, he's been constantly, we've seen this throughout our series, constantly reinforcing the Colossians' identity by constantly reminding them that as a result of their faith in what God has done through his son Jesus, they are accepted and included as full participants with God and as full participants in the life of his people. And now Paul's calling them to live that out themselves in the context of their own relationships. He's challenging them to live curiously in a very tangible way by accepting Onesimus as one of them. And so we see Paul here in these final instructions inviting the Colossians into this rich partnership that is all about community. He's inviting into this rich partnership that's all about being in community with Paul through prayer, being in community with people outside of the church and embodying the presence of Christ in those relationships, and being in community with each other and embodying the love of Christ as the people of God. Well, after calling the Colossians to be centered in community, look with me at Paul's final comments here, beginning in verse 10. My fellow prisoner, Aristarchus, sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my co-workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea and Hierapolis. Our dear friend Luke, the doctor, and Demas, Send greetings. Give my greetings to the brothers and sisters at Laodicea and to Nympha and the church in her house. After this letter has been read to you, see to it that it is also read in the church of the Laodiceans and that you in turn read the letter from Laodicea. Tell Archippus, see to it that you complete the ministry you have received in the Lord. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace and peace. Be with you. This is these verses are very typical of the way that Paul's letters end. And that's because it was customary in the ancient world to conclude a letter with greetings. Now, as you quite possibly might have experienced as I was reading through those verses, it can be pretty easy for us, I think, to tune out when we get to these sections of scripture. That they feel more like a formality because they are. The names are hard to pronounce. Uh, Most of them we don't recognize. And so it can be easy for us to conclude that there's not really anything of much significance going on in sections of Scripture like this one. However, as we look more closely uh, at these verses that come here at the end of Colossians, we actually see that Paul, I think, is doing something very significant here. Paul is actually doing something very significant here. Now, one of the things that makes Jesus' teaching so compelling is the way that he pairs his words with actions. Jesus didn't just teach. He lived what he taught. And we actually see Paul, I think, doing the very same thing here as he wraps up this letter. Right after instructing the Colossians to be centered in community, Paul, through these greetings, models exactly what that looks like. Right after he instructs the Colossians to be centered in community, he models for them what it looks like and what it means to actually do that, to be centered in community, and how that's playing out in his own life. And it starts with him extending greetings from his six ministry partners to this church at Colossae. Aristarchus, who, according to Acts, was a Macedonian from Thessalonica, and a frequent traveling companion of Paul's. Uh, Mark, the cousin of Barnabas, who was an early member of the church at Jerusalem. Now, Mark is actually one of the more familiar names in Paul's list. He was also at the center of a major disagreement between Paul and Barnabas in Acts after he deserted them in the ministry in Pamphylia. Uh, A disagreement that was actually so sharp that it caused Paul and Barnabas to split ways. Barnabas wanted to take Mark, and Paul didn't, and so they decided to go actually in different directions because they couldn't come to a resolution over it. However, Mark's presence now in these comments, because of that, it now appears that he and Paul were on the path, at least on the path towards restoring the, the rift that they had had between them. So we've got Mark. Then there's Jesus' justice. Uh, about whom actually very little is known. Now, Paul notes at the end of verse 11 that these three, Aristarchus, Mark, and Jesus Justus, are the only Jews among his fellow co-workers, which means that the next three people that Paul names and extends greetings from are Gentiles, right? There's Epaphras, who remember from Colossians chapter 1-7 was the person who originally preached the gospel at Colossae. Then there's the doctor, Luke, who is also familiar to us as the author of both the Gospel of Luke as well as the Book of Acts. And finally, there's Demas, uh, another fellow worker of Paul's that's also mentioned in the letter of Philemon as well as in 2 Timothy. And then, after sending those greetings, Paul extends personal greetings to two church leaders in the Colossae area, a woman named Nympha, who was hosting a church in her home in the nearby city of Laodicea, and Archippus, a member of Philemon's household, who appears to have had some kind of ministry within the church that Paul is encouraging him to complete. And so we see from all of this that Paul himself was very much centered in community. Paul himself was centered in community. Not only do all of these names here demonstrate the vast relational network that Paul developed as he traveled around the known world planting churches, but they also reveal, I think, how intensely personal that work was. Now, Paul wasn't just going around the world establishing institutions. He was developing relationships. He was creating lifelong partners and in, in co-workers in the ministry of proclaiming the good news of the gospel. And that, I think, makes Paul's description of his work at the end of chapter one, even more poignant. He says in Colossians 1, verse 28 and 29, he, Christ, is the one we proclaim, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. And then he says, to this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And I think we see Paul's passion really embodied in these greetings that come at the end of the letter. Now, something else that emerges from these final verses is the way that the community that Paul established reflects his overall message of inclusion. we also see here the way that the community that Paul established reflects his message of inclusion. Now, when Paul instructed the Colossians back in chapter 3, to rid themselves of the things that destroy relationships and undermine community. When he instructed them to rid themselves of anger, rage, malice, slander, filthy language, and lying. The reason that he gave for the Colossians to rid themselves of those things was the new relational reality that came along with their identity in Christ. He says it this way in chapter 3, verse 11. He says here... In the community of God's people, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. And when we look at that verse, and then we look at this list of Paul's co-workers here at the end of Colossians, this list of his co-workers for the kingdom of God, we actually see this in action. Right? Among the ten people that are named, there are Jews and Greeks, slaves and free with Onesimus, male and female with Nympha in the church in her house, Right? You've got Mark on top of that, coming back from this relational rift with, right? with Paul. When we think about this, we have this amazing picture of the kingdom of God in action. This amazing picture of that banquet table that Jesus talked about, that everyone is invited to pull up a chair to. And so we see Paul here, not just rattling off a list of names and greetings, right? we see him living out what he's been teaching in this extremely profound way. The Colossians were were living in this tremendously complex and tremendously diverse cultural context. On top of that, we also know that, that there were false teachings that were circulating among their community that were creating all kinds of confusion for the people in the church. And so Paul was writing to encourage them in the midst of all of that, Paul was writing to encourage them to remain centered in Christ and to remain centered in Christ so that they could live lives worthy of the Lord and embody his presence in the world. And as we see from Paul's final instructions and greetings this morning, community plays a huge role in that. Community plays a huge role in that. And so, as we endeavor to stay centered in Christ today, in a similarly complex and diverse cultural context, being centered in community is vital for us as well. It is similarly vital for us to be centered in community as we pursue being centered in Christ. But that can be a real challenge. Being centered in community can be a real challenge. And one reason that's true is because we live in a culture that values inherently, instinctively, production over relationships. We live in a culture that values production over relationships. We live in a work-dominated culture. We work hard, and we work a lot of hours, and we do all of that so that we can get a lot of things done. And because of that, and all the cultural pressures surrounding it—you know—it can be easy for us to just sort of push community to the, push community to the side right, out of sheer busyness. Just push it to the side and figure that it's something that we will get to later. And it can become easy in a way that's almost subconscious. I think right, to not fully appreciate our relationships and not fully appreciate just how valuable they are. And it can be easy for us to take community for granted because we're just caught up in trying to keep moving as fast as we possibly can. Now, one of the things that I hear oftentimes from people who move out of the area, uh, which uh, here in the Silicon Valley, unfortunately, is something that happens more often than I would like. But something that I hear oftentimes from people who move out of the area is how challenging it is for them to find a new church community. And the reason that I think that that's difficult is because, you know, in our context, we don't really realize, I don't think, how deeply intertwined and interconnected we actually are because we're so distracted with other stuff. We sort of lose track of how connected and how intertwined we are with people, and that right, community in whatever sense it's manifesting itself in our lives is not an easy thing to replace. It's not hard to find another church. There are lots of churches. The difficult part is replacing community, right? and that is something that I think because of our dominant cultural values we lose sight of. Last week I, I traveled with my son Trevor to Honduras. Uh, to help lead a team building and planning retreat for the staff at the Garden of Love and Hope Orphanage. And one of the things about Honduran culture uh, that I have really come to appreciate uh, throughout the course of my travels down there over the last several years is that uh, unlike our culture, uh, Honduran culture is relationship driven. It's relationship driven. Uh, Now, sometimes so much so that it's really difficult to get anything done at all. But it's relationship driven. Um, Relationships in Honduras are are definitely valued over task. And one of the primary ways that that manifests itself is that people are rarely alone. It's an interesting thing. People are rarely alone. You know, you think about our culture with the demands of busyness and the effect that it has on our desire to be others. We're always looking for time to be alone. But in Honduras, people are rarely alone. They are together with others, and and that sense of community and togetherness is something that's valued deeply, Uh, and it's something that I think that we definitely could stand to learn from here in our context. Another reason that being centered in community is a challenge is very simply because community can be difficult. Community is oftentimes very difficult. Relationships are messy. We don't have to look any farther than Paul's comments here at the end of Colossians to see that. right? You've got Onesimus coming back as a runaway slave, needing restoration with Philemon. You've got Paul and this relationship with Mark that's broken down, and that's in the context of being restored. right? And in the very same way, you know, relationships are no different for us. They can be very messy as well. But Paul, through these final greetings, powerfully reminds us that it's ultimately in relationships, it's ultimately in community, that the gospel is lived out. It's ultimately in community, it's in our relationships that the gospel is actually lived out. God takes the mess of all of our stuff and he makes it into something beautiful. And in doing that, he makes himself and he makes his love visible. And so despite the challenges, being centered in community is vital because it's, it's in relationships that we actually live out the love of Christ. It's in relationships that we live out the love of Christ. As Nick and the band come, uh, we're going to close this morning uh, with an activity, actually, something that we, we haven't done anything like this in a little while. We're going to, uh, to close with an activity that we actually started in the last service. And it's an activity that uh, not only gives us a chance to appreciate the reality of being a part of a community, but, but it's an activity that also gives us a chance to tangibly illustrate the importance, the important role that community plays in remaining centered in Christ. Uh, and over in the, uh, in the corner of the room to my left, uh, you'll see a big board there, with a large circle on it that has Christ written in the center. And uh, and as the band plays this morning, as we close our time together and reflect, I want to invite you uh, to get up out of your chair, uh, to walk over to that side of the room, take a pen, that take one of the pens that's on the that's on the little table there next to the piece. And uh, and in the same way that Paul says in verse 17 that that he writes this letter with his own hand, I want to invite you to take one of those pens and sign your name on that board. And to sign your name on that board uh, as a way of reinforcing both this reality that that together we are a community, to recognize the value of that, um, and also uh, to remind us of the vital role that we play in each other's lives as we seek to remain centered in Christ. But being centered in Christ is very much about being centered in community, as we've seen this morning. Uh, And as we do that, uh, the band's gonna lead us in a song called Trusty and True. And uh, this is a great song that, uh, that not only reminds us of the importance of coming and embracing community and relationships, even in the midst of all the pressures and pushes that keep us from doing that, not only reminds us of the importance of coming, but it also reminds us that all of us, regardless of our situation, are included and are welcome among God's people. We are included and welcome into community. And so as we sing, come and sign your name. Uh, And may we be centered in community as we seek to remain centered.